Hello, this is The Game Podcast from The Times and I'm Natalie Sawyer. With me today and back by popular demand, it is the fearsome Scottish duo of Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft. And after the shock of Jonathan's unpopular football opinion, I may get my own back by going back in time to remind him and Gregor of a match that certainly England enjoyed. But Jonathan and Gregor, as ever, lovely to have you both on the podcast. How are you, how are you keeping, Jonathan? Yeah, very good. I'm a bit wary about the agenda today, I have to say. <laughs> didn't, didn't have you down as a vengeful type, Natalie. <laughs> well, what well. can I say? It was that unpopular football opinion. It's brought, it's brought that vengeful side out of me, that's for sure. Um, before we get to speaking to you about the latest conversation you've had with Wayne Rooney that's to come in the Sunday Times. Gregor, how are things with you? What's, um, what's been happening with you? Because I don't, you're not doing your press-ups anymore, so what are you doing now? <laughs> I've taken on the old 5k challenge that everyone seems to be doing and um, I've, I took ages to get under 22 minutes and I, I broke that the other day and I was kind of still looking longingly at kind of former teammates and what times they're getting and thinking I should be competing with them but I'm probably deluding myself so I'm making progress slowly but surely. Slowly but under 22 minutes I think that's pretty impressive I have to say. Well you've made me feel better about it definitely. <laughs> but have you got a target in mind that you'd like to get to? Well, under twenty. That's <gasps> what that's what seems to be the benchmark for people. But um, I'm quite a way off yet, so I'm going to have to put in the yards and put down the margaritas. Oh my, yeah, maybe so. Maybe that's the problem. But I have to say, when you say, "Oh, I'd love to run under twenty minutes," the idea of just running for twenty minutes sounds quite easy. But for someone like me, that sounds absolute hell <laughs> because I can't run for a, for a minute, let alone twenty. 20 minutes so uh, I do raise my my hat to you Gregor I think that's pretty <laughs> impressive um Jonathan what about you running is that your sort of thing oh it used to be uh Natalie I'm, I'm too old for that now I've got an exercise bike though rather I've got a, I've got a bike that's attached to a turbo trainer in my office Ooh. um and I've been doing a lot of um video rides during lockdown which is really nice there's an app you've, you you get that you can go on a a ride in the Pyrenees or a ride in you know Mallorca or that kind of thing it's 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 absolutely lovely escapism um a bit brutal on the legs but as I say you watch the video and pretend you're going up a mountain and that bit's quite nice oh that does sound quite nice um were you on your bike then when you were speaking to Wayne Rooney today (laughs) I haven't quite multitasked in that in that way yet no no I I wasn't I was pacing around the office uh, listening to Wayne which is as as interesting as always Mm, any highlights to look forward to well, um, we were actually speaking about the, the return to football or potential return to football. And, and it was, you know, Wayne's very kind of honest about his opinions and he's got some very sort of honest and strong ones about where we are in terms of, of football's return, what it means for players um, and, and the concerns that players have. So there was, um, that, was a, that was a big topic of the discussion, uh, among other things. Okay, well, we look forward to that then in the Sunday Times. And coming up, we are looking into the mounting problems for the EFL. And we're taking that trip down memory lane to Euro 96. All that to come after this. Now, as the Premier League continues to formulate plans for the return of football, player safety has become the central talking point around any hopes of a swift return to action. Times columnist Matthew Syed has raised a few eyebrows this week, insisting 
Is it fair to put lives at risk for football? On balance, yes. Matthew is in no doubt that despite the known risks, it's time for footballers to get back to work. He explains, footballers are at low risk. The fatality rates for younger people with coronavirus is tiny, if not negligible. According to the Office for National Statistics, the number of people under the age of 30 who have so far died from COVID-19 in England and Wales is roughly one per million. This rises slightly for those in their 30s or those like me with an ethnic minority background. But it reiterates what statistician Sir David Spiegelhalter has pointed out, that this is largely a killer of the old and those with pre-existing medical conditions. All professions, Matthew says, will face some risks over the coming months. This cannot be a bar to the resumption of work. Now, it really is strong opinions from Matthew's side. Uh, I'll come to you on this one first, Gregor. Do you agree with what he has to say? Uh, there was some persuasive uh, mm. parts of it, and he's. I think his central point in that is that everyone, you know, th- this is something that could li- we could be living with for a long, long time, and every decision we make is going to be a balance of risk and the perceived reward, essentially. So I, I understand that. My my only problem is when we kind of stray into the territory of it, almost sounding like we're we're telling people who are taking the risk about the risks, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I think, you know, we can't tell footballers what to feel about this. No one yeah. can. Uh, I tried to, I've tried to put myself in this position and sort of think to myself, if I was a player now, how would I feel about it? And I, I've said this before on the podcast, but the, the way that we now live our lives, everyone, it would be, it would seem so alien. I think initially, certainly, and I don't know for how long, to completely step out of that reality to play football and full contact sport, full-blooded game of football uh, in training every day for four weeks, I think there's going to be have to be now before they even start games. Um, and all all the protocols, everything we've heard about in in, uh, in the last week or so, about, you know, bleaching balls and goalposts and grass and uh, all these things, that's kind of, that's kind of transitory. That's very... That's a temporary fix, I think, until and no matter what, you can't get beyond the fact that you have to go out and play a game of football, full contact sport, uh, and there is risks to that. And I just, my only problem is that I, I would never want to tell footballers how we feel. And I think people are. I don't think Matthew is. I think that, you know, some people could per- perhaps perceive that. I don't think he is. I think that there are a lot of people who are kind of pouring scorn on footballers who have raised raised fears, valid fears and valid concerns. Uh, I don't think it's our, it's in anyone's kind of position to do that. Well, it has been a week where we've seen Danny Rose hit out at Project Restart with some colourful language to explain he doesn't care about public morale. Uh, Mark Noble and Troy Deeney have also voiced their concerns on a video conference call on the proposed restart date of the 12th of June. But as we're now seeing with some of the lockdown measures being eased and there being a, a slow response to people returning to, to work if Jonathan the rest of the country is starting to get back to work should footballers be doing the same well I mean look I think I think Gregor puts it very very well there actually that that we we um, have to first of all respect that we, we, we can't tell anyone in the situation never mind footballers what to do so every every person um, who's been asked to go back to work is weighing up risk and reward. And, and, and now, of course, you know, people have employers who, in some cases, might be, might be telling them they have to work. Um, 
uh, but you know are also in those situations being able to provide them with with sort of safety assurances. I don't think footballers had a clear footballers have had that clarity yet from their employers. So I think that's I think that's one of the concerns because football isn't like um, working in a, in a lot of other areas. It is a full contact um, profession. Um, people are being asked to go back to work if possible, but they're still being asked to socially distance, um, and workplaces are being arranged around that. And there's still this problem of social distancing while while playing. And I don't think that's been um, clearly sold to players yet. I don't think players have been spoken to enough, and I don't think they've been part of the process enough. So, so that's that's one that's that's one of the issues. Um, I, I think the difficulty for players is that when they do raise any concerns, then there's very little public sympathy because there's a mood of you guys earn a lot of money, therefore just shut up and, and get on with it. But I think you've got to try and put yourself in in players' shoes and actually ask yourself, you know, would you would you would you do the same? Would you, would you would you play? And I think that's that's a question I've been sort of turning turning around in my head because um, playing football does involve close contact, and I would if I was a player, I would I would want I would want to be medically assured that there wasn't a significant risk. And what we've got to understand with players and risk is, as, as far as I can pick up from the conversations I've had, players aren't particularly... It's not It's not the worry about themselves, it's the worry about their families. I think players recognise they're healthy and they're young people and all that kind of stuff. But it's the worry of um, you know picking up COVID and, and taking it home to young children or to partners and it then spreading outside the circle to, to you know older relatives and all that kind of stuff. And I think we, we all have we'd all have those worries in the same situation. Um, I think what Matthew was saying in this column, the point he was trying to make, and, and typically bold and fearless of him to do it, was you know a, an important one philosophically, which is that we are always at some point going to have to live with risk with this uh, until there's a vaccine. You know, so if 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 we're saying we can only do you know not just football but everything else once it's safe, well, you know, there's that wider thing of when is that point going to be reached, and we we simply don't know yet. We could be year we could be years away from it, quite honestly. So if you then recognise that um, at some point you're going to have to take a risk, um, then you you sort of put put sport back into that. But as I, as I say, I don't think the risk has been clearly enough identified for players yet. And of course, they're going to be watching what happens in Germany um, very, very closely at the weekend. And that might shift the dial a little bit. But we have to recognise as well that Germany started six weeks ago. You know, they started getting back to training six weeks ago. And from the outset, they had clear plans. And the players have been involved in the process and it's been sold to them. And that hasn't yet happened here so we might be at the beginning of a process where that can happen but I just think we're, we, we are a long way behind them 
Uh, and it's a bit too easy to look and say, well, they're playing, so our guys have got to play again tomorrow. I think like, a lot more needs to be done before that happens. More understanding on, on every part involved. And it, within Matthews Peets, he does talk about how the, the vaccine or uh, that we may have to live with this for, for months and possibly years without that, that vaccine that's been mentioned. And he questions is not how to eliminate risk, but how to manage risk while while living our lives. Um, it's a really fascinating piece and it is really strong opinions that he that he puts in this. Um, Gregor, what's interesting as well is he says, um, all players will have a choice of whether to depart football and seek a less risky occupation or carry on. This is all centering on if we never find a vaccine. He says, lockdown players can't keep earning big money indefinitely. And that obviously leads on to what, what we've sort of been talking about, that bugbear that a lot of people have of, of, of footballers earning a lot of money and some of them, are still not taking a pay cut or or not doing their bits to help their own clubs or the or the game itself. Where do you stand on what Matthew said about that? That maybe footballers will have to think of a new career. Um, I, I disagree with that. I think I, there's so there's so many facets to this. I think that the first thing is that you know the, the earnings of a player always come is always one of the first first complaints. It's and if there was any sort of relationship between what someone earns and their ne- this kind of necessity to to risk their health to work, then I think we'd be looking at some some big pay hikes for uh, certain sections of society who've been working sort of very bravely at the moment. And that's not so. That's there's no relationship between those two things. That doesn't exist. Um, it's true that it can't go on indefinitely with players being paid big sums of money and and not playing. But the, I think the real truth is that this is going to be a decision taken as a collective. There might be a few people who say, in reality, I'm not playing. I have I've spoken to people who said that there are players abroad just now who have almost essentially said they won't be coming back until they feel it's safe. So that there will be some people, I think, who say no. But it's going to be a collective decision. And I think the PFA will actually almost guarantee that too so I don't think this is a uh, it's an argument that needs to really be discussed I think that there's a, a wider argument about a kind of a moment in time when there's going to be um, the need for a bit of a reset financially and within football and that's because of the wider picture and the fact that there's not going to be any fans in stadiums and advertising revenues are going to drop the fears about a potential rebate for the, the TV contract I think the idea of saying that a player uh, has kind of valid, certainly what he would see as valid health concerns um, and having to possibly leave the industry because of it um, is nonsense. Mm. Jonathan, if a player does decide that they're not comfortable to play yet, should they still be paid in full? That's a, that's a good question um, because it, I guess it depends on um, if you know how how much of an outlier they are, I suppose. If everyone's playing and they're the only one um, not playing, um, then you can see it happening. But you know, should morally should it happen? I mean, I mean, I think we have to respect players as individuals, uh, as as human beings, and we have to try and sort of think: um, Would it be fair if an individual in another workplace? Um, who, who felt under risk said they weren't going to, they, they didn't feel able to, to work. Would it be fair for them to be sacked? You know, I would like to see that, 
question being put in the context of what society or how society would be treating people in comparable situations. And, and, and in a way, that's something we all kind of need to decide as a society, which I think is, is actually kind of where Matthew's coming from. He's trying to put it in that bigger context. But, you know, for, for everyone returning to work, what, what are we going to do as a country for those that feel at risk, feel they can't work under risk? You know, that's, that's almost got to be, that's where the decision has to come from. Whatever you thought about that, that column, and a lot of people have just kind of just read the headline and, yeah. and took a sort of an immediate view about it. It was excellent because it made you think, and it's true, you know, it was a kind of philosophical question almost. But the thing I, I would also add is that football, the players I'm speaking to, they are, they are seriously in tune with what the public think of them and also with every single update in, in how this, this pandemic is evolving. Uh, I spoke to a player the other day and he, he laid out the figures of how Germany, Germany is different from the UK in terms of um, excess deaths, which is, I think, Germany's at 6% rise in excess deaths and the UK's 61%. So we can look at Germany and think this is a blueprint, but the virus is moving in a very different way in Germany and players are aware of that too. They're, they're seeing that there's a slight ease of the lockdown and perhaps when phase two arrives where they have to go to co- to full contact training, this country might have to go into lockdown again. So you know, I I think we've got to give footballers credit. They're not just they're not just whining about having the potential of having to go back and and the risks. They know they're informing themselves about the risks. If you want to uh, obviously check out that article by Matthew, it is available online at thetimes.co.uk. Now, have we seen the final ball kicked in Leagues 1 and 2? The EFL chairman, Rick Parry, said this week that 1,400 players from the Championship to League 2 are going to be out of contract on the 30th of June. The majority of those players are in Leagues 1 and 2. And it's understood clubs do not want to run the risk of paying them additional sums when they do not have to. And with no guarantee, clubs in Leagues 1 and 2 will be able to meet the strict medical protocols being put in place for the Premier League and Championship for the resumption of football. It appears to be the end for the bottom of the Football League. So how on earth do you solve the issues of promotion and relegation? Here are the options on the table. Voiding the season completely, using the current standings, using a points per game average, using weighted points per game average, which takes into account the number of home and away games each club has played. Or how about this one from the Charlton boss Lee Bowyer? Take the table from halfway through the season when everyone has played everyone the once. OK, so there are all the options. Which one seems the most appealing if football can't come back in Leagues 1 and 2? Oh, it's it's a difficult one. How do we resolve this one, Gregor? <laughs> Thanks for coming to know. me first. Why not? Um, I think points per game average. And I know that League 1 in particular is ridiculously tight at the top. League 2 is a little bit more straightforward. Um, I just think it's the least bad option. I, I've... I think it's the same in every league. I think if this, if it comes to the point at which there's an acceptance that football cannot be continued, or perhaps even that playoffs can't be continued, um, I think this is the best option available. Um, I, look, I still foresee there being issues, and I know other people have have already raised concerns about how that would leave their teams, uh, and also after what has emerged, kind of in the last few days about. 
teams in the bottom six of the Premier League essentially saying that if they were to finish their season and the Championship were not to, then they would severely contest their, their relegation because the teams below them didn't have to complete a full season. There's no reason why that might not happen in, between the Championship and, and League One too because I think we're everyone pretty much accepts that League One and League Two is going to be called. The Championship, hearing that from the Premier League, is going to be uh, <laughs> desperate to finish its season now. So I think there's all sorts of trouble ahead. But personally, I think points per game is the is the least bad option. Okay, so that's what that Gregor goes for. Jonathan, does any of those stand out for you as, as the best option? Well, I'm so glad you went for Gregor first, actually, because <laughs> it gave, gave me time to look at these terrible options. But um, I agree with them, actually. I think you know, we don't want to avoid the season. Um, I think the other options are a bit confected. You know, current standings, obviously, you can't do that when some teams have played more than others. Um, I don't really understand the... I do understand, but I don't really like the logic behind the waiting um, points on home and away games because, you know, not every team's the same. Some teams are better away from home than they are um, at at home, or at least they're comparatively better. And that's a... That, you know, that, that's a, that's a skill, but some teams are better at home. I don't think you can sort of punish or you can choose which you know what, to reward someone that's better away than they are at home or whatever. Um, and I, I think Lee Boyer's um, solution is 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 again, you know, it, it, that, then you're boiling things down to a very short season. So I would go for points per game, but Gregor's right to raise relegation is it's the biggest issue in all of this because while I think you can stomach awarding titles on the basis of curtailed seasons the dire consequences of all levels particularly prem to championship but every level of relegation are, are so severe to to do it on anything other than the completed season is very very unsatisfactory so i would go for points per game but i would abolish relegation in every league um this year um and just put teams up put extra teams up from um from the national league that would certainly help them and for one season only have a have a fattened competition um that is if we can't complete the season of course what i don't agree with is that idea that the premier league can complete with no relegation that's you know if you're going to complete the season it has to be relegation but if this we're talking about not completing the season i'd go for points per game but no relegation at any level that's interesting. So, so Jonathan there, Gregor, saying that you'd have promotion, you'd have title winners and things like that, but there would be no relegation. Do you think that's fair, uh, Gregor? Yeah, I think that's perfectly reasonable. And I, I, I thought that beforehand, and then obviously the broadcasters in the Premier League kind of came to the point, uh, sort of reaffirmed the, the view that um, these would be all dead rubbers games. Um, if there was no relegation, there'd be no point, really. So that's not an issue, uh uh, certainly wouldn't envisage it being as much of an issue in the in the football league. So, uh, I mean, I, w- I personally I wouldn't have a problem with relegating teams either if it had to be. If if, if there was kind of there might be uh, I could imagine again a, a, a scenario where relegated teams would, would kick up a, a major stink if if teams were awarded for 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 promotion. Um, you know, and they and they and they 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 didn't have to you know they they still have to go down. So I think. I think I think it's kind of a bit of a minefield, and I, and uh, I just I just very much hope that that we can get some games to decide things like the playoffs because I fear that if there's no playoffs, then there might not be a third 
promotion place. Like you know, I think it, it could certainly between between the National League and and League Two, um, and po- possibly between something like the Championship and the Premier League. I don't, I, I can't see how the team who's coming down would would be would be would accept the fact that that no one really had to do anything to be promoted. Yeah, it, I mean, it's going to be a minefield, however they decide to settle this. I understand where Lee Bowyer is coming from with regards to Charlton's position, because, in fact, Charlton had never been in the relegation zone until the final matches that have pl- been played in the championship obviously saw them drop into it. So I can understand why he's doing anything he can to try and get his Charlton side out of the uh, bottom three as it stands. But interestingly, with his position that he took when you take into account the 23 games that he would want the league to be decided upon that would relegate Stoke Wigan and Barnsley and that would see West Brom and Leeds promoted the playoff positions would be made up of Sheffield Wednesday Fulham Preston and Brentford as well the problem with any of these decisions that are going to be made or are being discussed Jonathan is that no one is going to be happy no, that's 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 the biggest point, isn't it? That, that there's not going to be a perfect outcome. Even if even if there's a way of playing the season to a conclusion, it will be behind closed doors. That will create arguments about some teams losing the advantage they get from having a great stadium. We're just going to have to accept imperfection uh, somewhere. But that that's why I, I think that you know the, the my no relegation thing would only be if we don't complete the season. You know, if we if we do complete the season. You have to have jeopardy. You have to have relegation. But if we can't complete the season, then I, I do think it's just such a severe consequence um, that in all these un- imperfect, imperfect um, sort of outcomes, it, it'd be too severe to, to relegate someone on the basis of a non-completed season. So many potential issues from being unable to complete the season. Just running you through some more. Sunderland would be stuck in League One for a third successive season. Bolton would be heading for League Two. Coventry would be promoted to the Championship and then that would mean them ground sharing with Birmingham in the same league. The Peterborough owner, Darren McCantony, has threatened a legal battle of epic proportions, he says, after they won seven of the last nine to leave them just three points off the top two. And then spare a thought for Barrow, who are nervously waiting to find out if they are to return to the Football League for the first time since 1972. So much resting on the decisions that are going to be made. And how huge could this impact of COVID be, Gregor, on lower league teams, do you think? I mean, in the first instance, when you look at something like League One, it does, you know, it's so tight. It always is historically. I remember last season I went to Plymouth Argyle against Bristol Rovers. Um, I think maybe there was a handful of games left of the season. And... Either team, both teams were, were, I think they were placed 12th and 13th and both teams could have ended up in the bottom three at the end of the afternoon. That's how condensed the yes. league is. It's always like this. So there's no. this is going to be the league where teams feel it the most, where, you know, if you look at the table now, Oxford in third on 60 points and Wick, Wickham in eighth on 59 points. Uh, you know, so it's, the, the margins are so fine and there are going to be teams who feel so hard done by by that. But going beyond that, and once all that's kind of eventually resolved, you know, it's about how how the team survive, and and part of that is going to be about releasing more than a thousand players, probably, and then that obviously in turn is going to be there's going to be a lot of hardship among footballers, and it's just very hard to see how 
these leagues in particular could continue to play if this if this if there's not an, a serious improvement in the next few months it's hard to see how they could play without supporters through the gates there would need to be some really imaginative thinking about how how uh, how there could be any any income at all really you know we've spoken about the potential to kind of for supporters to pay to watch bi follow but i mean I, I, whether that that would be enough to support to support teams um at this level, who still pays some pretty some pretty big salaries in in League One and the third tier, uh, I, I very much doubt it. So, I mean, if it could be looking at a period of kind of hibernation, and and there's, you know, this has been discussed in Scotland actually. I think I think it was Jerry Britton, the the Partick Thistle uh, chief executive, said said during the week that, you know, I think Partick Thistle, they they in the Scottish Championship they called the season without doing a points per game. So Partick Thistle had. A game in hand over, I think it was Queen of the South above them, um, who they were two points behind, so they could feel very hard done by. But not only that, they were dropping into a league that that they they think is probably not going to be able to continue. So, you know, <laughs> there is so many, there's a, it's a can of worms, and it really is impossible to to see how it's going to actually work itself out. There are 71 EFL clubs at the moment. Many are fearing the worst and the impact financially of this pandemic and what is going to have on them. Do you fear at all, Jonathan, that we could lose some of these clubs? They could go out of business? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, look, we were on the brink with, with quite a few clubs before this. Um, I, I can't see the pyramid being looking the same when, when we get back um, to, 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 you know, how, how it looked before. And I don't know what Gregor thinks, but I also fear for um, a number of players at that level because... You know, a lot of them are going to be out of contract, and um, I just think you know that we're talking about a country now where we're going to have unemployment figures rising. I think these players could suffer the same fate because I, I don't see um, either. It'll either be a case of clubs can't afford to to take them on, or that the terms they're going to get offered to to sign will be so low that it won't be worth them playing, or it won't be possible for them playing with, with mortgages and so on to pay, and they'll have to go and do something else. And if clubs are going to carry on, they're more likely to, to, to look for you know, the, the cheaper, younger players from their own um, systems if they've got them to, to populate their team. So I could, I could see a generation of footballers um, being uh, having their, their careers ended early because of this too. Gregor, what about you? What have you been hearing about the finances of a lot of clubs? I mean, yeah, I think, I think really it is kind of there's a probably a period of the next couple of months um, when we will begin to see clubs that run out of money, um, and as as Johnny said, that what that means for a kind of a huge number of footballers with no industry to. To work in anymore, uh, it was going to be catastrophic potentially, um, and that it even works its way down in terms of kind of youth, uh, young players who haven't made a career yet, who are you know trying to make a career or got you know just perhaps signed YTS forms or things like that. There won't be. There's not going to be. There, there's a very strong chance there's not going to be uh, clubs for them to play for, uh, or a league or leagues for them to aspire to play to play in really. So, I I, I really think that it's. There's been so much hair pulling and kind of teeth gnashing and hand wringing or anything you want to call it about how to get the Premier League back, um, about you know 
calling players for for not taking wage deferrals, um, about you know <laughs> slagging them off now for voice for voicing any concerns about about uh, the potential of coming back and the risks it poses, and I think I'll, there's a still a, still a little bit of a blind spot really about until it, I think until it becomes reality and a club says look that's it we're, we're locking the gates and we are no more I think until that happens. People still have are still kind of caught up in when football is going to return, but it, there's a strong chance it won't in the lower leagues. Yeah, are the Premier League duty bound? And this is a question to both of you, really. Are they duty bound to help clubs in the EFL, Jonathan? I think they are. Uh, I think they. I think one of the charms of English football is the the sheer competitiveness, um, and that goes throughout the leagues and includes the Premier League and. Um, it means that you know when teams do go up to the Premier League, um, they they tend to be able to add something to it and, and and be really competitive. Now, if the Premier League wants to keep that that sort of strength that it's got, then it needs a stream of, of good teams coming up into it, um, and it me- and it also needs the jeopardy of relegation for for clubs being, you know, the drama that it is that when you get relegated from the Premier League, there's no you know, there's no guarantee you're going to come back up. So if it wants to maintain all that drama, it needs the supply of below it of, of teams to be strong and therefore it needs to support the pyramid that's that's below it. Um, and I'd say it's also probably got a, a bit of a moral duty because it still draws a number of its, a lot of its players um, from lower down um, the, the, the pyramid. Um, and, you know, it, it relies on... Um, the, the, the clubs rely on on communities um, for the for the supporter base, which have their own football clubs um, within them as well. So there's that sort of wider thing, and I, I just wonder with what we we're talking about before whether this might be a moment where feeder clubs gets back on the agenda, because I think the only way to protect the pyramid is for the Premier League to um, agree some way of subsidising it, but it'll want something back, and uh, we, you know to, to save clubs from becoming extinct and give them a future it, it might be a situation where the Premier League could start supporting um, more significantly the lower leagues but would, would be able to um, have some, some something more formal in terms of having clubs within those leagues to be feeders or B teams Do you feel like the Premier League should be doing more to sh- ensure that we do when football resumes have those 91 clubs and not just 20 Premier League clubs? This has illuminated how sort of interdependent every league and every club is and I th- I don't even think you can just see the Premier League I think I think if if there'd been a more kind of concerted unified approach to this in the in the first instance when players were starting a fund for the NHS which they already comp- <laughs> they already uh supply a lot of money towards in terms of taxation uh they really I think there should have been a fund created for for players and hardship and I think you would have had a you would have had a big sign up to that. I feel it's probably too late to do it now, and I pr- probably would blame the PFA in part for that. Mm. But I think that was something you could have players could have showed solidarity amongst themselves too, because I, as Johnny says, some of them came from these clubs, and some of them are friends with players who are playing in these these leagues. Um, so I think you would have had a big sign up to that. And I, I agree that Johnny what Johnny says about the the feeder leagues. I think that probably will come back onto. The agenda, but I think it would be something we need to be hugely cautious about because um, survival, yes, is the is the is the main thing, but um, 
the kind of independence and, and rivalry and competition of, of all these football clubs in these leagues is something that no other country in the world has and we should do everything we can to protect it rather than make it uh, a kind of a BT. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Well, let's lighten the mood, shall we? Let's have a little bit of nostalgia because this weekend football fans can relive the summer of Euro 96 on TV as ITV brings you Euro 96 Revisited. And Sunday night sees the hosts, England, take on Scotland at Wembley in the second round of Group A matches. Now, if you don't remember exactly what happened in the opening rounds, uh, England had underwhelmed in a draw with Switzerland, while the Scots were buoyed by holding the Dutch in their opener. And there was no sense of inferiority for the Scots with a team that was made up of Premier League regulars. You had Colin Caldwood in there, Gary McAllister, John Spencer, as well, of course, the Premier League winner, Colin Hendry. So, Jonathan, let's Let's take you back to that time. How optimistic were you about Scotland's chances in that game against England? I was younger, so I was more optimistic <laughs> about Scotland. I hadn't been burnt as often. But I think, no, I, I, we Scots were quite, I wouldn't say we were confident, but we weren't afraid of that game and saw it as, a, as, as almost a 50-50. And the reasons for that were, you, first of all, we had Craig Brown in charge, who always guaranteed that Scotland were competitive in every every game they played. And we played that game against the Dutch, who unravelled later in the tournament when they started falling out with each other and got beaten 4-1 by England. But in the first game they were um that was before all that happened and they were they were pretty pretty good. And and, and Scotland more than held their own. It was a great defensive performance which you always got under Craig. And we felt we could probably do the same against an under pressure England at Wembley and, and Scotland and England were kind of level pegging at least in our minds in those days, because um, you know Scott, neither had qualified for the '94 World Cup, but both had qualified for '92 um, and and '1990. Scotland had qualified for more tournaments in the in the two decades before. Um, we'd come through a pretty difficult qualifying group. You know, I guess Finland were very good with Litman at the time, Greece and Russia. 
there's a lot of reasons um, to feel pretty good about Scotland. John Collins, you didn't mention, was a point at Monaco, fantastic oh, yeah. midfield partnership with Gary McAllister. You know, Gordon Jury and Matalie McCoy up front. Scotland were a really, really good team. And um, it was, yeah, England were under pressure as well. You know, I, I remember I, I, my job, it was my, it was my first tournament and I was six months into the job as a football writer and I was the, the junior. So I had to cover England while the senior guys covered Scotland and I'd been to the England press conferences. There's questions about Alan Shearer. Could, you know, he had a goal drought. Could he score? Everyone was still, you know, was Terry Venables doing the right thing with his formation and so on? That confidence wasn't quite there yet. So, yeah, we, 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 we sort of turned up at Wembley and, um, and thought we can do something here. And for about 45 minutes, it looked like we were right. Just, just to pick up on what you said. So you, were, you just started out as your first sort of footballing writing job and you had to cover England, obviously, from the England angle. Was that hard? Uh, yeah, it was. It was pretty terrifying because the English, the English press pack was full of big beasts at the time. I mean, yeah. everyone remembers that Graham Taylor documentary, and those guys were those guys were were still around. Um, and I was I, I remember going down to Bisham Abbey uh, with orders to come back with a, a a big piece about Alan Shearer, and uh, Shearer was doing a sort of huddle with. Um, the, the English reporters, but obviously international press were being excluded, and I had to to kind of bargain with the English guys that you know I should be included, even though I was a jock and all that kind of stuff. And um, you know, I was I was I was scared of them all, to be quite frank. But um, but I did get in; they were they were they were fine. Um, and uh, it, England just seemed like you know we've we've come from the 2018 World Cup now and you know there's that closeness between the press and the players but that didn't exist back then it was it was you could see there was still that adversarial relationship I mean I loved it what an experience it was just to see that from a slight outsider point of view as well guys I'd watched in that documentary on TV and somehow standing alongside them yeah um great uh Gregor uh, you were what 12 years old something like that 11 12 12 yeah Wow. Um, What's your memories? Can you remember it at all? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, I remember uh, me and all my friends piling into my house, into the living room and watching it, and then probably a few people sneaking off with tears in their eyes afterwards. Yeah. Um, Yeah. No, I mean, these were were kind of the games that you, you lived, you kind of, you really looked forward to more than anything. I remember again in the in the in the World Cup in '98 as well. The our school saying that I think because I think Scotland played Brazil at lunchtime, and our school saying uh, no one should leave, like no one can leave school, like you'll, you'll be suspended <laughs> if you do. And they opened the, the gates to the assembly, and everyone just poured out and went straight home. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, so everyone, you know, the whole kind of nation gets behind it. And of course, that was the last time we we ever got to one. So if, I only remember it from my childhood. But of course, it was a, a classic match, wasn't it? It had everything. We had Alan Shearer's opener. Then he had Gary McAllister's penalty saved by David Seaman. And who can forget, just 90 seconds later, Gazza's flick over Colin Hendry's head before firing it past Andy Gorham to seal a famous 2-0 win, complete with that dentist chair celebration. It's been described as the game that Scotland can't escape. So does it still hurt, Jonathan, 24 years on? Oh yeah, it does. It really does. In, in, in some ways, it hurts more because, you know, I, I described before how we were kind of used to qualifying for tournaments, and and 
at the time, I mean, it was horrible, but there was a sort of feeling that, well, you know, another one will come around. And now in hindsight, I know England look back about a Euro 96 as a golden chance, but I mean, you know, we've had that in the 98 World Cup and that's been it since since you know, since then. And, and 96, we probably had a, a slightly better team and a better chance. And the thing about that game was um, Scotland... Yeah, I, I won't lie, England were actually the better team, Slight, slightly better team throughout, so I'm not going to pretend that we were on top or anything, but Scotland had done that Craig Brown thing of hanging in there, creating a few dangers, um, and you know England got a goal, and then Scotland got that penalty, and it was the fact it just went from, you know, within a minute, more or less, Gaza had, had scored that goal at the other end, and there was a particular pain in it being, it was a bittersweet pain in it being Gaza, because of course he was at Rangers at the time, he was doing stuff like that every week, um, he was, you know, he was very popular in Scotland, even even among, you know, I, I wouldn't say, okay, popular is maybe not quite the right word among Celtic and Aberdeen fans, but, you know, you couldn't help have a smile on your face when you watched Gaza, even if he was wearing the Rangers shirt, and seeing him do that was, you know, to, to Colin Hendry against Andy Gorham. I've got real mixed feelings about that whole thing. And, you know, Gary McAllister still more or less had his head in his hands at the other end while that was all happening. And Gary had his own pain to go through because, you know, he was a great player, but he wasn't quite ever accepted by Scotland fans um, the way he should have been because he played his career in England. And he's, that's that wasn't him personally. That was just a whole, there's a whole long line of players who played in England they were always called the Anglo-Scots, who, who were never quite taken to the hearts of the Tartan army because they didn't play the football in Scotland. And that was Gary. And knowing him a little bit at the time, um, it, it was painful that he was the one that missed the penalty. And then, as I say, so quickly, um, we were punished for it. And that was it. Mm. It is a game that a lot of English fans will look back on with a big smile on their face. But do we make too big a deal of it, Gregor? You made too big a deal of everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Why I don't not? blame. I don't blame you though. Absolutely, yes. Um, no, I mean, it, I think that England team. I, I mean, I remember watching that the rest of that tournament and kind of being swept away a bit by the the. There was a real kind of not expectation, a kind of euphoria around the, the England team. There, the, the team clearly were kind of had that kind of club spirit almost, which is very rare, and again, afterwards, sort of dissipated. So you could tell that they were all getting on pretty well. And despite the sort of, the the relationship between the media, which I wasn't quite so aware of then, it felt like the kind of country was, mm. was really kind of elated and thought this is, this is the time um, that, you know, England are going to win a major trophy again. Um, so I, I got swept away in that and, and, you know, I always enjoyed watching England. It just it comes to the point where, if you, the danger of you winning it becomes quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is it. I mean, I know uh, Jonathan when we had you on before talking about your unpopular football opinion, and believe me, it was unpopular. Um, what do you think that was England's best chance of a major trophy since '66? I think it was, and and I stayed with England for the rest of the tournament. The only game I didn't see was the game against the Dutch, because Scotland, where we were getting our hearts broken at Villa Park at the at the same time as the news of that score came in from from Wembley. But I, I watched. I, I was at England's other games, and I was at the Germany game. And my goodness, England were very unlucky there. And you know, Gaza again, the ball going past his oh, toe by dang. a couple of inches. I mean, yeah, you, I could still see that. You know, I can still see him sliding at that far post. And, um, 
you know, Terry Venables was a tremendous manager. He actually did a lot to turn around that relationship between the press I was talking about and the, the playing ideas that he introduced. You know, the, the, that that blend in the team of the young and the old with with Neville and and McManaman and so on, but the older players. It was a really really good side, and I I, I do believe they would have gone on and 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 won that um, and won that um, final. And I mean, the number of England players I've spoken to who were involved at that time who will tell you how great Venables was and the madness now at a distance that he didn't keep his job after that and, and, and continue because I'm, I'm, I'm at Hoddle did a good job actually for, for a couple of years but I'm, I'm sure Venables would have um, would have well I'm, you can never be quite sure they'd have won something but I'm, I'm sure he'd have taken England a long long way in, in, if he'd been allowed to, to keep doing what he was doing because he was a man ahead of his time England went on to defeat Holland 4-1, but Patrick Kluivert's consolation goal for the Dutch 12 minutes before the end meant Scotland were knocked out on goals scored, despite both countries finishing on four points and with a goal difference of minus one. England would go on to the semi-finals, where they, of course, lost on penalties to Germany. The big question is, Gregor, you know, you've already mentioned there was maybe some tears with amongst your friends and then you watched the tournament on as, as Scotland were knocked out. Does that mean you cheered when Gareth Southgate missed that penalty? No, I told you it's a kind of slightly conflicted uh, <laughs> relationship. It was, it was kind of I wanted England to win because I felt a kind of bit of an affinity with a lot of the players. I recognised yeah. them all and 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 very close neighbours. And um, but at the same time, there's possibly a little kind of. We call it a devil or an angel, just sitting sitting above my shoulder, saying it's probably just as well. Yeah. <laughs> does that does that mean has that changed over time? Would you like England to not win a tournament less now? I I, I would I would love to see England win a tournament. Yes, I would. I mean, I've lived I've lived <gasps> here for what? Seven, this seventeen is a years. Shock. I love it. <laughs> okay. I've lived here for seventeen years, and I kind of it's. England's my home, and it would make a lot of people I know happy. And um, although you'd be unbearable for the rest of my lifetime, <laughs> uh, I could deal with it. <laughs> you could deal with it. What about you then, Jonathan? You, you were covering England, as you mentioned before. Were you, in some ways, then disappointed when they got knocked out? Yeah, I was. I was, and 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 this, you know what I said last time about England. I mean, I was just giving an honest opinion about England overrating themselves, but it doesn't mean I dislike the English. But I mean, you know, I I, I feel the same as Gregor that you, you become quite attached to the players because you see them all the time. And and I would have, I mean, professionally it would have been great as well. But I'd, I, yeah, I felt that team deserved to win. Um, but you know, talking about tears, I've got to give you a little insight into what what it was like press wise uh, at Villa Park. For the for the Scottish press pack, I mean, when Ali McCoy scored this fantastic goal against Switzerland, and it seemed for for so long it was going to be one of those rare nights for a Scot where it just everything actually does go right for once, and it was it was fabulous. And when that news of that Clivert goal came in, it was just the biggest punch in the guts. And I I do remember a, a, a very well known Scottish football writer who was standing in full kilt. Um, with tears, you know, he just basically left his laptop, and and, and tears were rolling down his, his 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 face. He just couldn't he couldn't take any more while the game was still going on. I said laptop actually it would have been a notebook at the time. It was I was just thinking, did they yeah, have laptops? Yeah, then? no, no. I'm just thinking. I mean, actually, in that England Scotland game, um, I filed my copy on a payphone 
uh, at Wembley. So I had to leave. Yeah, I had to leave with about five minutes to go and beat the crowd, get down. And there were all these like, pay phones in the concourse and managed to grab one and, um, uh, and I had to file to, to copy um, while all the England fans were sort of streaming out. So that's how prehistoric it was. Yeah, but... Uh, it's funny you mention that because I, in one of my former jobs a very, very long time ago, I used to work for the PA and people used to ring in and file copy then. So, yeah, how times have changed. It's much nicer now, isn't it? That you can email your copies in. Um, if nothing else, if we can take anything away from Euro 96 which was that, Gregor, you've mentioned it already, the sort of euphoria of a nation all being swept up by that tournament. Does it sort of make you excited by the possibility of the Euros, which is predominantly, uh, what, next year's Euros, going to be predominantly on English soil? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it'll be great. It'll be great to have an uh, international tournament here, but it's not quite the same, is it? It's not It's not yeah. quite the same when it's spread out. I've never been a big fan of that, that idea, and I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to... It's going to survive the no. the coronavirus pandemic, so um, I would just hope that England was the the country that was chosen to to host it all, and I think it could do that very well, and um, that it would be it would be brilliant to see that happen. But um, yeah, I don't I don't think it's quite the same if it if it lasts if it continues in the in the current format, then I I don't think it's quite the same as being the host host nation. It's it'd be great to have games at Wembley and um, and uh, and and have have fans from all around the world visit this country but um we'll just need to wait and see how that unfolds i'm afraid mm. well if everything does go to plan and we are able to stage the euros next year does it excite you jonathan oh hugely i mean yeah i've been i can't remember how many tournaments but i've probably been six or seven um i've seen football tournaments around the world but i actually think the way this country embraces football you see it in the premier league um, you see it if you go to a big game in Scotland. Um, I think it's unbeatable, really is. And, and Euro '96 was as as good a hosting as I've ever seen. It was as, as as sort of happy and excited a vibe in a country as I've ever seen. You know, including being to Brazil, being to Germany, being to France for tournaments. Um, a, a tournament in Britain is a special, special thing. And um, I, I like Gregor. Wish that you know the next tournament would be like a full hosting, but the, the, the next best thing will have to be that format that they've devised for Euro twenty twenty. I just hope you know these things don't come around very often. So I hope if it is going to happen, it happens with fans because it'd be horrible for that that kind of chance to host a tournament or half host a tournament to to come and go with no fans there. Be, be, you know, because because as I say the. The, the, the crowds and the stadiums that we can provide in, in, in Scotland and England are, are second to none in terms of tournament hosting. Indeed. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Gregor and to Jonathan as well. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet, including, of course, that Wayne Rooney exclusive column is coming this Sunday. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Times subscription for more information. We will be back with you on Monday for the very latest game podcast. Enjoy your weekend and stay safe.